about 600 years ago, the decorating committee for the Florence Cathedral decided that they wanted to enhance the look of that incredible building. And so they began a project in which they decided that along the, the top of the cathedral, they wanted to have a number of statues of some of the biblical heroes, some of the, the prophets of the Old Testament particularly. And so they began the process of planning for this. In about 1464, after several years of discussion and what they wanted to do, they commissioned the quarry that was in Tuscany to mine a slab of marble that would be used in order to create one of the statues. The marble was mined, it was brought to Florence, and a sculptor was chosen in order to begin the work. His name was Agostino. He began his work and he began to rough out the, the legs of the statue, and all of a sudden he just said, I'm done. And when he looked at this piece of marble, he declared, it is so flawed it is so inferior that absolutely nothing can be made of this piece of marble. And he abandoned the work. Now, that piece of marble was expensive. And so after a few years, the, the decorating committee there in the cathedral decided that they commission another sculptor. His name was Rossellino. He came, he began, just made a few strokes onto that piece of marble and said the same thing. There are too many flaws. It is too inferior. Absolutely nothing can be done with this block of marble. That block of marble sat in a graveyard for about 25 years. And the decorating committee, after paying all that money, said, we've got to do something. And so they began a search to see if they could find a sculptor who would be able to take that marble and make something out of it. Sculptor after sculptor rejected. It's too flawed. It's too inferior. Nothing can be done. Until they came across a young upstart. His name was Michelangelo. You may have heard of him. And he said, when I look at that block, I see what it can be. And so Michelangelo was given two years to make a sculpture of that inferior, flawed block of marble. It is considered Michelangelo's greatest piece and one of the greatest pieces of sculpting in all of history. It was Michelangelo's David. You see, when Michelangelo looked at that piece of marble, he didn't see its inferiority and he didn't see his flaws. He saw what it could be. 
And as he was working on it, there's a couple of interesting things about Michelangelo's David. First of all, it's much taller than most of the muscular figures that were part of Michelangelo's working. And part of the reason is because of the flaws and inferiority. They had to make it taller than it could what they would normally do. Because what he saw was what could come out of that, even with its flaws and inferiority. His right hand, which is on the, that side of the statue, is actually much larger than normal. Because that what was necessary, both to support that part of the sculpture and also because it was considered, it was going to be way up on the top. So he wanted it big so people could see it. The facial features are also more distinct because he wanted them to be able to see it even at a great distance. And in order to use the flaws and inferiority to accomplish his work. One of his contemporaries would declare when he saw the statue for the very first time that Michelangelo brought back to life that which was dead. He saw what could be. The artist saw what was possible. And through the process of the the large breaking off of huge parts of that stone, some of it in the narrow tools that they used, some of it in the polishing that they would do and in the sanding they would do, as he saw what could be, he brought out of that flawed and imperfect and insufficient block of marble this incredible masterpiece. What I find so interesting in Scripture is God does exactly the same thing. We talk about holy and that God is holy. And one aspect of his holiness is that that sense of his character, that there is a character about God that, that sets the standard of what it means to live a life that is moral and upright and righteous and godly. But the other part of holy is that sense of the other, the, the, the awesomeness, the, the incomparability of God. And as much as Michelangelo could do this, could do that. I'm looking at the back. As much as Michelangelo could do that, God is even an even greater master, artist. And his masterpieces are even more spectacular. We've been looking at the book of Isaiah. And the theme of Isaiah is God is holy. We're not. Now we need to deal with that. God needs to deal with that. And when we come to this section of the book of Isaiah, I know that as Fred was reading that, you're going, gee, that's real uplifting, Keith. You know, the faithful city has become a harlot. The, the, the tall oaks are fading, the this and that. And you read through that and you say, this is so depressing. But what we need to understand is what Isaiah is saying. 
Because constantly in the book of Isaiah, there is this back and forth. We're going to see it again next week. We're going to see it again the week after that, where God says, I see what can be. I see what can be brought out from you. I see what I can create from the flawed and imperfect stone that I am working with. But I also see the flaws. And I need to deal with them. And so when you come here to Isaiah Chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles, turn there, beginning in verse 21. The theme of this section is very simply this. Out of our current mess, God fashions his glorious masterpiece. All of the songs, or most of them this morning that we sang, talked about that. That God is at work in the life of the believer If you don't know Christ as your Savior, he's at work in your life to draw you to that point where you will put your faith and trust in the fact that Christ died for you. And that that faith, that trust, establishes a relationship, establishes a covenant, establishes a family tie that exists through eternity. And for those that enjoy that relationship, God is at work to create his masterpiece in you. In the Old Testament, often he spoke in terms of the nation. And God was at work in bringing this nation, this nation he had covenanted with, this nation that he called his bride and his children. He wanted to make them a a, a people that would demonstrate God's presence in, in all that they do and draw others to God through their example. Now God is doing that in the church, but he's also doing that in us as individuals. Now, as you read Isaiah chapter, the end of chapter 1 and the, verse, the, end of, and the beginning of chapter 2, you understand this. God knows who we're capable of being. When you begin there in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, as Isaiah introduces himself again, as he begins sort of this new section again in his book, he talks about what we will be, and he begins there in the last days. When all is finished, when all is done, when God completes his masterpiece, there will be a spectacular work of art among God's people. And as you read through that, the first thing he wants us to know is God knows in eternity we will be an uncompromising reflection of his glory. And so he says there, in the last days, there will come a time when this city, this, this Jerusalem that now acts like a harlot, this city, this Jerusalem that now murders the innocent, that same Jerusalem will become the place where people come and say, that's where we go in order to know God. That hill, that Zion, that chosen place of God's dwelling, that's the idea of Zion. That's where we go to know God, to see him, to to hear him. That's the place where God's glory is uncompromisingly reflected. 
the New Testament speaks about the fact that when we see him, we will be like him. And that all of eternity, we will reflect that incredible glory of God. We will demonstrate God's mastery of his art of creating that which reflects him. But as Isaiah is writing this, as God is speaking this, there's also something else that God knows. God knows that presently we can be an ever more effective reflection of his glory. There's a really interesting uh, play on words that take place here. If you look there in verse 3, it talks about the time will come when many peoples will come and say, it's future, it's that eternal time. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, to the God of Jacob. He will teach us there. And there's sort of that future where God says, there's a day coming where all will be right. When, when this city, this people will reflect me, they will teach of me. But then at the very end of this section in verse 5, he changes from the future to the present. And basically he says, why wait? You're already that people. You're already that nation. You're already that body of Christ. You already are a reflection of Christ and God's spirit within you. And so you'll notice there in verse 5, it's not in the future, it's now. Come, O house of Jacob. Let us walk in the idea is now in the light of the Lord. God is at work not just in what we will be eternally. He's at work in what we will be now as a greater and more effective reflection of his glory, of his son in our lives as we represent him. As I look out, God says what I ought to see among his people is little Christs, Christians that are more and more a reflection of his glory and that God is at work in your life to accomplish that. That God is working that, that God is doing that, that he's sanding and sculpting and, and chiseling and whatever it takes. God is involved in order that we might reflect Christ more effectively. That we might be what we are created and what we are saved to be. God says, now you can be more effective. Let me do my work. Accept my work. Submit to my work in you. The third thing we understand is that God knows the more we are what we will be the greater our sense of wholeness, meaning, and purpose now. The more I live as God created me to be, the greater sense of purpose and meaning to my life. We'll see that all the way through the book of Isaiah, as over and over again, Isaiah comes back to, if the nation will do this, if the nation will do that, if you will submit to what I'm doing, this is what I will do through you. You will enjoy more and more the fullness of the covenant and the relationship you have with God. And God knows that the more we choose to live in ways that reflect him, 
the more we enjoy the fullness of what we are meant to be. I, I feel the pull of that on my life in so many ways. Being married 40 years and the idea that when we were first married, the, the longing to be the kind of husband that I wanted to be for Cindy and, and wanted to be that, that kind of man in, in the lives of the people around me and the kind of father. And the more I allow God to do his work in my life, the more I can enjoy that, the more I feel that purpose and sense of meaning in my life. A willingness to say, God, whatever it takes. I have been reading some articles lately about the sense of worthlessness that exists in our culture among especially the the younger generations and among the elderly. Suicide among the elderly is rampant. And the idea is there's no sense of purpose, no sense of meaning, no sense of value. And God says, as you live in ways that reflect my glory, you're a part of the work that I'm doing. You can impact others through your speech, through your actions. You can impact them through your prayers. You can impact them through praising and glorifying God and letting others see that in your life. You can have an eternal purpose that I've created for you. That's what God sees. The New Testament Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 30, and I don't want to get into the theology of this. We can do that another time. But he says, and we know that that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this is his purpose. Not that we be comfortable, although God loves it when we are. Not that we be, you know, just have the greatest and happiest and richest and most powerful life. No, his purpose is this. For those whom God foreknow, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among his brethren. And then to take it into eternity. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified will ultimately be a reflection of the glory of God. But now he's at the work of allowing you to be more and more a reflection of what you're reflected to, what you're created to be. Ephesians says it this way. Christ gave those gifts, and he talks about the different gifts that God has given. Why? To prepare God's holy people for the work of serving, to make the body of Christ stronger. This work must continue until we are all joined together in the same faith and in the same knowledge of the Son of God. We must become like a mature person. What's God's goal? What's God chiseling in order to accomplish? What's he trying to do in all this? What does he see in that flaw? an imperfect piece of stone. He sees a growing likeness of Christ as he seeks to make us more and more that reflection of his glory. More and more involved in the purpose and the meaning he has given to our lives. But God is also honest. And that's the part that Fred read this morning. 
God sees us where we are. And for the nation of Israel, they were terrible. For a thousand years, God will come and say to them, be my people, walk in this way. And they kept saying, yes, God will do it. And then they'd thumb their nose at God and and go after idols and live in unrighteousness and misuse those who were powerless and all those things. And God kept saying, I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this. Finally, in Isaiah, he says, I'm dealing with it. And so God sees what we really are like now. And the things that he has to deal with. And Isaiah summarizes them there in that, that, that beginning as he begins in verse 21. And he sees, see how this faithful city. And the idea is my bride. The bride that I have chosen has become a harlot. And that which once saw justice now sees murder. Now, what does God mean? Does he mean that Israel was filled with prostitutes? No, he's speaking spiritually. And even murder there, I don't think is literal. I think it's, a, it's an illustration. What he means is simply this. Spiritual harlotry is the abandoning of God and his ways to pursue satisfaction with another. We understand what unfaithfulness would be in my life towards Cindy. If I abandon my covenant to her and I run after somebody else, believing that's where satisfaction will be found. Spiritually, that's idolatry. And be careful. We want to say, well, we have no idols. Yeah, our idols are just a little bit different. Things like power, money, comfort, possessions, ease, pride. That says, I believe that in these things, fullness and wholeness in life can be found apart from God. And it's rampant in our society. It's rampant in the church. When God says live in this direction, these are the ways that I call you to live. And we declare back to God, I am the idol. I am the God. I will do it my way. That's spiritual harlotry. That is being unfaithful to God. That is saying, I believe that lover will fulfill me more than you. Could you see where God might be offended? But the other, the other thing that he focuses on and develops even more is the idea that murder here is the destruction of the innocent motivated by greed and selfishness. My profit, my accumulation is more important than anything in your welfare. 
one of the things you're not going to like in the book of Isaiah. Because I don't like what it says. Is how I'm responsible to look after the widow. The orphan. Those that are in need. Those that are in prison. Those that are caught up by the violence that is around them. And as a believer, I cannot look at that and say, oh well. It's the law. When we move into Isaiah and over and over again, he will talk about justice and destroying violence and fairness and rightness and how God's people are moving in opposition to that. And as a result, they are no longer righteous. They are murderers. Do you know that Jesus quotes Isaiah? When he's defining his ministry. And he says I've come in order to give sight to the blind. And to give hearing to the deaf. And to, to, to take care of the orphan and the widow. And, the, and he's looking at the needs that exist there. And as believers we cannot close our eyes to that reality. I'll leave it at that. We'll get into it more later. What Isaiah says is when you pursue that false God, when you pursue and believing that you are the most important thing and you use and abuse others to accomplish what you think you want, such pursuits look inviting. But ultimately they humiliate, disgrace, and destroy me when I do it. Oh, it hurts others. But I also destroy me. That's what you see in Isaiah as he develops this passage. And he talks through here and he begins to, to tell them about what will happen in response to that. He says in verse 29, when you walk in this murdering, when you walk in this unfaithfulness, you will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks, those big trees that look so great and that garden that looks so wonderful. He's speaking about the, the symbols of idolatry at that point. And he says, yeah, you'll be like a mighty oak whose leaves are fading. It's shriveling up. Like a garden with no water. And you know what happens? One little spark. And it's destroyed. Beloved, if you place your faith in anything other than God for a sense of wholeness and purpose and meaning for a sense of direction, what you will find is the smallest spark will consume it. The smallest illness, the smallest downturn in the market, the smallest rejection, the smallest imperfection that is exposed to others. They will destroy what you have built because it does not rest on God. Now, I'm so glad God's word doesn't end there. I'm so glad that there is that sense of hope 
that God says there's something else. There's a different way to live. There's a different being that you can be. I am at work in your life. If you simply submit to what I am doing, I will create a masterpiece. See, what you don't know is that when Cindy and I were going to premarital counseling at PCB with the professors there, we were probably voted the least likely to succeed. The first premarital counseling we ever had was with Dr. Showers. We fought during the session and continued to fight afterwards. But thank God, God was at work. He had a lot of pieces to knock off this jerk. A lot of things to chisel away. A lot of rough edges to sand off. And he's still at work. But you see, the wonder of God's word is this, that God lovingly does what is required to shape us into what we're meant to be. If you're his child, if you're in covenant with him, if you're in a relationship with him, he is at work in your life to create his masterpiece that can love the way you long to love that can have integrity the way you long to have integrity, that can be faithful in the ways you long to be faithful, that can be kind and caring in the ways that you long to do that. Allow God to do his work. And that's what you see Isaiah saying as you walk through this passage. There's, one, there's an amazing verse that, that just jumps out. And when you look at it, so often things like this don't quite hit us. But in verse 24 of Isaiah chapter 1, it says, Therefore, and he says, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, nowhere do you see that kind of triplet. But Isaiah is saying no matter what the mess, no matter how flawed the marble, no matter how inferior it may be, this great master, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, He's at work. If you want, you can read the verses that follow and just circle all the eyes. It says, I will get relief from my foes. I'll take care of the things that are wrong. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away. I will restore my judges. Over and over and over again, God says, this is my work in your life. I will do what is necessary to create that masterpiece. Sometimes it's joyous. Sometimes it's struggle. But please know God is at work. Sometimes God brings those events specifically in our lives. Sometimes it's just a bigger work that he's doing. But God will use it in our lives to create his masterpiece. The New Testament says it this way. God raised us up with Christ and sealed us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's what we already are in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate. 
But now, I know I don't have verses 8 and 9 in there. It's the part you know really well. But the focus is on his purpose. For we are God's masterpiece, his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. He's working in our lives to create his son in us. I close the message with a little video. It's a little longer than what I usually use. But that speaks about this work. It's one of the best videos that talks about this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the invitation is to come and to allow him to begin that work through that relationship that is established through faith. And if you don't know the Lord, are you willing to allow him to make that masterpiece? Isaiah says it is the penitent, the submissive, the repentant is the idea there. That God is able to accomplish his purpose within that life, to create that masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's masterpiece. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I don't see a masterpiece, but I want to. So I go to God and I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of your Son? Make me your masterpiece. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi. No, who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. That's how it works. <laughs> you're not God. No, I am. Okay, uh, if you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations is a very short book. It only has five chapters. Why is it so short? I was tired of lamenting. You are God. What's that about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. This is the process. I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Let's get busy. Okay. I'm going to bring up things in your life that don't belong in your life. And uh, start right here. Your anger. Ow! I created the emotion, but you use it in the wrongest of ways. You compare yourself to others instead of me. And you lie. You tell little white lies. You're so afraid of confrontation. You're becoming a people pleaser. Okay, time out. Um, I think you've done some really good work, and I'm looking pretty good right now. When you look in the mirror, who do you see? I see me. Okay, then I need to keep chiseling away because ultimately you and other people need to see my son. Okay, but when I look like Jesus, people get uncomfortable, and I don't think I'm supposed to do that. So what you're saying is you'd rather play God in certain areas of your life than for me to be God over your whole life. No, what I'm saying is you've grown me to here. Maybe we take a break from each other for a while, all right? And then I'll stay here, and then you come back, and we can grow some more. You never just take a break from me. You're either moving toward me or away from me, but you never just plateau. What you're doing is called control. Do you want to control things in your life, or can I chisel? Control, chisel, control, chisel. No, no, chisel. All right, here we go. Can we chisel where I want? That's called control. Okay, sorry. Mm. This right here, that secret sin, that thing that you run to whenever you're hurting, you're angry, you're lonely, you're tired. Do you want to keep rearranging this in your life, or do you want me to chisel it out? Chisel it. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's your whole life. This this hurts, okay? I don't think you understand this pain. Don't talk to me about pain. I know all about pain. I sent my son to die on the cross for pain, for sin. But I also did it for another reason, to give you freedom. Do you know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And there are things that you are doing in your life that are insane. Allow me to chisel them out of your life. I know, but... 
I've let you down so many times, God. No, you were never holding me up. Okay, then chisel away. But just be prepared for what you're going to find in there. Because I know who's inside there. God, I get up every morning, and I hate what I see in the mirror, because inside is a scared, stupid kid. And I try. I try, but I can't. I can't be who everybody else expects me to be. God, I can't even be who I want to be, much less who you created me to be. So chisel away and just know what you're going to find in there. You have listened to so many voices, so many critics for far too long that are not for me. And you've bought into the lie. You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night, at the end of the day, you think you're junk. I don't take time to make junk. I want to show you something about my love. Reach in your back pocket. This is a... It's a page from a notebook when I was in college. How'd you get this? Hello? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, read it. Dear God, did I hear you right? You said you want to use me. But I feel really useless. But if you can take this life, this mess of a life I have, and do with it what you want, I love you, God. I love you too. And I love you too much just to leave you where you're at. It's going to be tough. Yes. But you bought into the lie thinking everything was going to be easy when you said yes to me. There will be trouble in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to do something. I want you to look out there and I want you to say, Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Tommy is God's. No, not the way you see yourself or you try so desperately for others to see you. But maybe for the first time in your life, the way I made you, the way I created you. Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Yes, you are. And so are you. You are an original masterpiece.